Once again, to another episode of Mike, Mike, and Oscar. I am your co-host, Mike. One co-host, also Mike, here to introduce a third co-host for this part of part one, I should say, of our summer Oscars report. We're going to look back the best of the year thus far. Mike, who was our special returning guest to help us kick this off? Yeah, welcome back to Eric Weber of AwardsAce.com, YouTube's Midnight Movie Talk, and the brand spanking new series at the Multiplex. Uh, also, the chair of the Sunset film critics circle eric uh it's, it's great to have you back my friend uh you know welcome yeah guys it's it's exciting i mean listen we're almost we're over halfway through the year and mm-hmm. we're just about at the awards window right we're, we're almost there and you've got now venice just announced tell your ride's gonna be soon obviously you you have toronto so we're here it's just gone so fast it really has i, I think the you know the 72 month uh Year, awards year we had for the two previous awards year helped out getting us here quicker but yeah we're yeah. at the, at the uh, precipice now let's start with what mike just said is new in your world and that you're giving to all of us congratulations on starting at the multiplex it's addictive stuff it's playing on youtube at the hollywood critics association youtube channel can you enlighten us on how that started between yourself and scott menzel there yeah we okay so when i first came out to LA a few years ago, uh, I started bumping into Scott at press screen because, you know, press screenings are just full of pretty much everybody that you see on film Twitter in LA. They're there. And, and we hung out, we started talking uh, and we just realized we had a lot in common um, mm. and, and knew that at some point wanted to do something together. We kicked around some ideas and I've always been, and I'm sure you guys are too, huge fans of Siskel and Ebert. I mean, mm-hmm. when I was a kid, I grew up watching the show. That's how I knew about half of the tiny little independent films that I did growing up in Columbus, Ohio. It's from Siskel and Ebert. So we said, hey, how can we make this happen? And, and I think one of the essentials for that show is you have to have both people in the same location, on a set, yep. in an office in this case, wherever it is, you have to be there. It can't be done on Zoom. It needs to be there in person so you can have those after the you know person gives the review, you have that breakdown of the two of you arguing about whether you liked or disliked it. And that's essential is having you in that same space. So once we determined that we could use the Hollywood Critics Association's office and really turn it into the, the set for at the multiplex, so let's do this. And, and we finally got the first episode. I know we were supposed to do this last week, and we just got slammed. It took, mm-hmm. took a little longer to tape than we expected because, uh, you know, it's the first show, and, and you're trying to get it exactly how you want it. But but ultimately, uh, I think it was a pretty good first ride, you know, and I think we're going to improve the show going forward. But it's really fun because, you know, growing up again with Cisco and Ebert, that we're doing something in the same vein is pretty crazy. Well, I loved how you guys got into that uh, debate on Nope uh, to start things off. So that was a good, that was a good entree to, uh, yeah. You you came together on the Gray Man from opposite sides. A sides lot of, of people have come together on the Gray Man. I feel like, yeah, hate <laughs> your heart. Film. Oh, God. I mean, and then you were, yeah. And then you're both very wrong about where the crawdads sing. So that was like, <laughs> it was a hell of a way to finish up. But. I know you didn't like that. I kept seeing the tweets like this film, any film greater than where the crawdads sing. And, and you know the weirdest? I, I thought I'd be there with you. And then I sat through it. And I'll, largely for me, that film was all about just the mystery of it. I had no idea what was going on when I came into that. I thought it was just about the swamp curve. I didn't know there was this whole murder mystery and, and the, you know, the expanse of time that the, the tale is told. But I think it's pretty solid. Now, I, we, we could do a whole podcast about how you don't, <laughs> but, but surprisingly, we both agreed. I was sure that we were going to absolutely split on that. I figured Scott would like it, and I would really dislike it, and it turned out to be we both liked it, which is going to be strange when we get in those situations where you're expecting to do one thing, and then you're open to another. But listen, like either, you know, whether you love something or hate something, you, you're, you, we love listening to you, especially on the Midnight Movie Talk, and I got to ask this question because Mike and I are we're very dependent 
codependent on one another as hosts. Like we've we've tried to do solo shows before and they have not been fun, that's for sure. And look, I think we edit less these days mm. uh, unless we boof something obvious and, and we'll fix it in post. But you are doing a live solo broadcast several times a week and these shows run upwards to an hour. So I, I got to know, like, how do you approach these things? I know I'm like in my brain, if I'm doing a solo show, I, it takes me like six, it takes me like double the prep time and, and it's a, my nightmare, but you seem to just rip them off a couple times a week. That's, you know, it's it's all about just flying by the seat of your pants. Honestly, I swear, I, I put a little bit, you know how much I think about that? Right before, like five minutes before I'm going on, I'll throw <laughs> some lower thirds in there, things I want to talk about. I probably should spend more time, you know, in fleshing it out. But it's weird. You know, I used to do live television, as you guys may or may not know. Mm-hmm. I used to be a TV news anchor. So we would always have breakdown segments where we had to just wing it. You were improv it based on whatever the topic was. And you had very little uh, advanced knowledge of what it would be. So you mm-hmm. have to be able to talk a lot and to keep it moving forward, even if you don't know. I mean, hell, we've been doing these things for years now with you. And, you know, there's times when we start a question, I'm like, okay, how are we going to wrap this back into where I can take it, where I want to take it? It's not an easy skill. It's something that I've been doing for such a long time that you just get, I guess, better at BSing. <laughs> well, <laughs> we got uh, we got some uh, fodder for you to BS about today. But, no, I think uh, – no, I, I love I love the takes, and uh, it's, it's a, a, as entertaining a show as there is out there right now on YouTube. So kudos there. And, yeah, I think – Today's show is going to be kind of looking back at a lot of the stuff that you've been covering for a while, but I did want to like ask one appetizer of, of something looking forward because it just broke uh, last night, and that's Killers of the Flower Moon probably jumping to 2023, and you, you cover in the box office like crazy, so this is definitely a box office question. Do you think Paramount is sensing some money earning potential with Killers of the Flower Moon, or do you think this is maybe just Scorsese and Thelma Schumann? maker and post and taking forever and a, a kind of a typical delay for the two of them uh or do you have another explanation for why killers of the flower moon might have been delayed here so no wait so I, I see here this is this is news to me i don't even know did they did apple move that out of there Killers of the flower moon i didn't even see that so it was a rumor on Deadline, and they're doing like this new show, The Dish, or this new column. I think it's a column, The Dish, where it, beca- it came out on film Twitter, and it was a big rumor. Killers of the Flower Moon probably headed to 2023. And then Variety, our buddy Clayton Davis over there, comes out and says, yes, it is going to 2023. And you know, The Dish was talking about how Paramount, after the Top Gun success, was like, hey, we're probably going to look to make some money back on this $200 million budget. And who knows if it's grown since then. And now Apple's like, all right, we'll, we'll happily take it after you're done with it. Paramount, if you make the money back, if they're distributing, I don't know. See that, well, that, that makes the most sense to me. I mean, listen, whenever you get a film that's delayed, you've got to figure it had something to do with shooting, reshooting. Um, they need more time with it in some way, shape or form. Uh, in this case, because it's Paramount has the theatrical now, because at one time it was just going to go straight to Apple Plus and they put a little tiny little theatrical on it. They mm-hmm. must see the potential for making some money on this film. And and why would you rush it at this point if that's the case? So if you do push it and you want to make it perfect, then it makes sense. I mean, we already have so many films that are going to be vying for attention this coming award season that it might just be one of those things, too. You look at what's in the space and then you say, well, let's just maybe take a shot at 2023. Even though we have some idea what's going to happen there, we really feel like we can take advantage of that. Because also, remember this, Paramount is sitting there with Babylon. And I think mm. at the end of the day, if we talk about one film that is the if I had to put all my cash on one film to clean up the <laughs> biggest award winning film of uh, the Oscars uh, 2023, it's going to be Babylon just based on little just based on Chazelle and based on old time Hollywood. That is going to be a wonderful combination for awards. Anybody, anytime anybody says they want to put their money on something, my ears perk up because I am a degenerate, but I think you make a good point there. It makes a lot of sense. We're going to talk about some of the bigger movies of the year that have happened and will happen uh, to come, but one of the highlights uh, that Mike and I both love having you on for, especially at this kind of the mid-year, the summer review part, is that you've come on historically and I've, I've shown the light on some of the smaller known movies that may not otherwise get any kind of awards recognition whatsoever, and like historically you've brought to our attention Rent-A-Pal, you've brought to our attention Funny Face, you've spoken highly 
highly about St. Maud in the past and, and X from Ty West this year. Those are things that you've done in the past. We wanted to kind of start just by doing some hot takes, some quick rundowns of some movies that may not get awards recognition, but just we know you've seen them. We know you have takes on them. We wanted to start um, uh, have Mike start you off with Poser here. Yeah, Poser is some really cool little film. And this is, I was shocked to see that you shared a love for this one. Sylvie Mix, Bobby Kitten, underground Ohio music scene. And now that I know you're from Columbus, Ohio, and I remember that you're a Buckeye fan, this is starting to make some sense. So please let the people know about Poser here. So Poser is is a film from Oscilloscope Labs, right? So when we start talking about studios like that, or go back to the orchard in you know years past that's no longer around. These small labels like Gravitas Ventures, which was Funny Face. Once you start getting down to that level, you are really picking up some rocks and you're looking under some things to find these films. Mm-hmm. And so I saw this this trailer, just a little bit of a, a clip from this poser, and I saw Columbus, Ohio, my hometown. I was part of the art scene there, so I'm like, okay, let's watch this. And I was pretty much blown away by this first feature by this pair of directors. Uh, from Columbus that just basically did this thing on a shoestring budget. And it's very much single white female. And when you watch that film, you get into it and you don't know where it's going to go. It's another one of those really well-told tales. And by the end, you're like, wow, that was a really nice finish. So I give them credit for not just the overall film, but the screenplay. And it's great to find little gems like this. It's not often you do. Mia, last year you mentioned the funny face. Um, Funny Face absolutely is another one of those films that no one's seen that I love. And those are the things that you really want to shine a light on because we're all going to see all these award films that are coming our way over the next few months. Uh, These small films, on the other hand, are not. But the good news for Poser is it got a nice little theatrical push in New York and L.A. and some small markets across the country. Um, So they did at least get it out there. Uh, You know, it's probably something that my friend Chris Gore, he runs his thing called Award This. I said, "Ah, you need to push Poser for that because that's the kind of film that he's looking for for that. Mm. But but again, these are these are really treats when we go to film. you're, You're not expecting much out of them. And you go, "Okay, hey. This is a future talent that you're watching right here. The filmmakers of Poser. Do you have uh, any high marks or any similar feelings about the Phantom of the Open? That's a higher class studio, Sony Pictures oh, Classic, yeah. a more well-known studio. But anything about that? Well, I mean, for one, Sony Pictures Classic completely botched that film. I mean, if you look, you start with the poster. The poster of the Phantom <laughs> of the Open is so dull. And you just look at it like, I didn't even watch it. I go, what is this? The Phantom of the Open. Uh, and, and, and then I look and saw... Sally Hawkins, Mark Rylance, okay, Sony Pictures Classic. Okay, let's check this film out. They kind of dump it in the middle of the summer and give it a very tiny theatrical release. And, of course, it's never going to be a huge hit. But I'll tell you where that film works. It's a screenplay. The screenplay of The Fan of the Open is written by the same guy who did uh, Paddington 2. And he's actually in the film. I'm forgetting his name, Farange, something like that. He's very talented. Uh, screenwriter, as you know, you've seen Paddington 2, you know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And I think that if you look at Pam the Open, for me, it's a screenplay play. And I think that they could have done more with that film if they would have pushed the release date a little further into full. The one issue with that film, though, for me, is that the direction is solid, not spectacular. Here's what I'd love to see. The fan of the Open directed by Danny Boyle. <laughs> you're, you're talking about <laughs> hell of a film at that point because the screenplay's that good. And then we all know what Danny Boyle can do with the film. If you give him those, like even look at something like, um, what was the Beatles one? The, the Beatles uh, Boyle. Yesterday. Film. Yesterday, thank you. Yesterday is a film that shouldn't work and a lot of people don't think works, but it does for me because of Danny Boyle's direction. So if you give him anything, and in this case, a better screenplay in the family open, my God, this would be a really outstanding film, but it's still very good. But again, Sony Pictures Classic just kind of threw it out there. They don't know what to do with it, and they just said, let's just get it out of here and and, and see what happens. But I recommend that film as well, no question. Yeah, uh, shout out to Simon Farnaby, the most British name ever. Yes, there it is. Yeah, and he's in the film. He's also in Paddington too. Small little character actor. He, He writes the screenplay. He's in the film. Certainly a better case of that than Joe Russo in The Gray Man. At that point, I wanted to throw <laughs> my Gray Man popcorn box at the screen when that popped up. But yes, uh, better usage of writing and being in the film in The Phantom of the Open. 
Well, speaking of Across the Pond, this is a film I actually haven't seen that I was tempted to go and watch like a hundred times, even from Sundance all the way. It kind of was in theaters for a minute and then it left. Is Brian and Charles. This I missed, and tell me why I missed out. Well, do you haven't seen it yet? I want to. It's twenty dollars right now on VOD. Am I a fool? Just spend the twenty dollars, or I, you know, it's Focus Features, so you should trust the brand. You should, and it usually, except for Mrs. Harris goes to Paris. <laughs> mom, earmuffs. Mother, yeah, earmuffs. I, I know. Trust me, my own mom was like that. She saw it at the multiplex. Like, what are you doing? It's supposed to be this lighthearted. I, I get it but I shouldn't know exactly what every character is going to do throughout the entire film and where it's going to end up uh, at the very beginning of the opening credits. I mean, give me a break. So that's not a good focus features film. Brian and Charles is weird in a cool way. That's just really entertaining and charming and picturesque. It's shot in Wales and it just looks great. And the lead in this film is a very strange dude, but he works with this robot, um, Charles Pedescu. And he, it's, you, when you watch this film, I'm telling you, there's no way you're going to come out of Brian Charles and not think that this was a very surprisingly entertaining film. I mean, that's the best you can ever say about one of these tiny little things. So it's a really cool little focus feature. Is it going to be an awards film? No, but uh, it really deserves your attention. And the last one we'll finish up with here, a smaller one, but it's maybe the most polarizing of the four that we're mentioning. Uh, Mike was really high on it when he watched it, but I, I, he brought to our attention. There's been critics that have kind of taken their shots at it. Watcher, starring Maika Monroe from IFC Midnight. It's uh, director Chloe Okunu's uh, project there. Are you a fan of it yourself? Yes, I am, and I, and I like her direction a lot, too. Um, you see that. You, you watch films as much as we do, and, and you see so much product. You know when you see a director of talent. And, and I go back to Poser and I go here to watch her. When you watch Chloe and what she does in this film, uh, and just like, uh, you know, I'm not going to say Chloe Zhao, we're not at that level yet. But when you watch, even before the writer, you watch what Chloe Zhao did, you see the talent. And when you watch Watcher, you see it. And, and, and Micah Monroe, I mean, is really, she has to do it all in this film. So it's another one of these interesting little awards plays on a very low, like a spirit awards. No question. Mm -hmm. I would absolutely throw her in there. Uh, it's another one of these uh, real good mysteries. I wouldn't even call it a horror film. It's a, it's a thriller, but it does have horror elements to it. But Watchers, I think now, I believe it's IFC's biggest, highest grossing film ever. And it did very well in that space when there's when you counter program, right? When you sneak in there and there's not much else to view except for, let's say, a Top Gun Maverick at the time. There wasn't much else uh, that was available to you. So people start to seek out other things. And I think right now would be another time to release a film like that because we were looking at this weekend, DC League of Super Pets, and that's about mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. So it's like these studios would be wise. And I think that's what Focus did with Brian and Charles and Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. They found this little space in summertime where they know these aren't going to be major award films. So, like, let's just get a little bit of cash on this and, and uh, you know, release it at the best time that we think is uh, possible for this thing. Resurrection with uh, Re uh, Rebecca Hall is, I believe, IFC Midnight. I think they're... They might be following your playbook there and kind of releasing that. That one has some swerves to it. I know you're not a huge fan of swerves, but uh, I think I think that could maybe play on some folks, uh, or, you know, this this weekend. But yeah, I love IFC Midnight, and that's cool that we hit on uh, we hit on them like the last few of these uh, rapid fire shows yeah. here, uh, lap, rapid fire segments rather with some hidden gems. So we'll get back to some rapid fire. Uh, stuff for you at the end but i think we got to ask some burning questions about the big movies that have come out this year thus far and to to give people kind of some brief history like last year we had corella summer of soul coda they were they were all released in uh you know the first three quarters of 2021 uh corella uh Cr was may uh excuse me uh May, June, and August, uh, respectively there. In 2019, we had Rocketman, Toy Story 4, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood all come out by July. This happens every year where we get Oscar winners, never mind nominees. I mean, you can go further back. Uh, 2020 you had uh, like five nominees all come out uh, in the first six months of the year. So we do a mid-year Oscars report for this reason, Eric. And I'm wondering, this has been... 
this has been something that's never been really spread out in terms of where the most of the nominations come from, most of the winners come from. Do you ever see that changing? Do you ever see the Oscars taste, the Academy's taste changing to where we'll, we'll eventually we'll see more nominees and more winners from earlier in the year? Do you think this year has a there's a chance of that with what we've gotten so far? Maverick for sure, right? So you start with Top Gun Maverick, a film that is now at almost 1.3 billion worldwide. That's a sensation. It's a phenomenon. Everybody's aware of the film. It's going to be an awards play. It, the question is, how big of an awards play? But once you're talking about it as a possible best picture, then you start sliding into pretty much everything, right? I think editing should be there. Cinematography. You can go Tom Cruise, best actor, without question. I like John Hamm and supporting. You could throw Val Kilmer in there. I know it's tiny, but I'm saying there's all these options you have. And that's rare to have a film this early. I mean, especially know it this early. I think even look at Get Out, which had the success very early in the year uh, release and then ended up being an awards film. We didn't quite know that was going to happen. And then Universal slapped a pretty big FYC campaign on it. It obviously had the buzz. Maverick has the same, you know, if not bigger buzz about it. So you're looking at Maverick as a as a film that will undoubtedly be an awards film. I hope that Hollywood and the Academy and any voting body when it comes to awards is able to find films throughout the year that are worthy of being in the conversation. It's not the best film of the last three months of the year. It's the best film of the entire year with qualifying from beginning to end. So you really have to look at it that way. I, I don't ever look at a film, uh, you know, from earlier and say, well, that's an early in the year release. Therefore it's dang. You know, Elvis, Elvis is a film that I think should be there for direction. Uh, just start with direction. What Boz Lerman does with direction in Elvis is next level elite stuff. You can't just, most directors can't do what they did with the style and skill that mm. Baz did. And I think that's a play there. But who cares when a film is released, right? I mean, the problem is, is recency bias. That's going to be the, yeah. the number yeah. one issue. So it's fresh in your mind, so you feel good about voting on a film you just watched a week or two ago. But you have to watch that as an awards voter. You have to say, it doesn't matter. And when you look at it head to head, it's like, you know, when we're doing draft prospects in the NFL, you're looking, it doesn't matter anything except for ultimately which one is the better fit or which one's the better film in this case. It doesn't matter when it came out. So something that matters kind of arbitrarily, uh, it seems like we wish release date was kind of arbitrary, but it seems like the box office with relation to whether it has Oscars relevancy is like this arbitrary number on a case-by-case -case basis for every film. And, and Top Gun's where I'm going with this, but, it, it, you know, you talk about these Marvel movies and kind of from the from the outset, it's, it's the, well, they can never be recognized on the Academy level, no matter how good they are, no matter how universally appealing they are, because the box office is their award, right? The amount of dollars that those films get is going to be their award. So we never really take anything like Avengers Endgame seriously for the Academy Awards or Oscars recognition. But yet, you have films like Bohemian Rhapsody, Joker, I mean, you could throw Avatar in there. I think Top Gun's going to be an example of this, where the argument seems to be, well, look how much money it made at the box office. Of course you have to recognize it for the Oscars. Where's the line of demarcation between those two lines of thoughts? Does it exist at all? And again, how do you, I mean, are you, you seem to think, at least based on what you just said, that you're in the camp of Top Gun did so phenomenally well at the box office, that adds to its Oscars campaign rather than take away from it. It adds to it, but I think the film is worthy enough, right? It, it qualifies for quality. But when you throw the box office in as well, then it's an unbeatable combination. Uh, that's I don't really care at all about box office when it comes to awards because you look at Netflix. I mean, they don't even release their box office numbers mm -hmm. on those films that Power of the Dog, they put out you know a week early. They just did The Gray Man a week early. Obviously, that's not going to be an awards film. But, but when you look <laughs> at Netflix... You have no box office. So I, I don't think it's crucial, but you can't ignore it. So it is important for some of these films. Even Elvis is just over 120 million uh, yesterday, just past 120 million domestic. That's roughly 30 million above Rocket Man. And mm. the, 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 the way those two films are similar is, is easy the release date, right? Because as you know, Rocket Man was an end of May release. Elvis mm -hmm. a little bit later, so you get a little bit better, you know, release date on that as far as getting closer to the window. But uh, I think that Elvis has a better shot of doing 
uh, better awards because you've got, for one, Austin Butler. I mean, you, you can't deny that there's not going to be five actors better than Austin Butler and Elvis, right? He Even was I mean, right, there's not, there's no world or universe, I don't care what year, bring me a year and show me five actors and I'll tell you that Austin Butler was better than one of them. So yeah. the chances are pretty much zero. So he's in. Uh, at that, when we go back and you look at Taron Edgerton, we thought he'd be in, but again, that that's where the early release date really hurt it. And I know Paramount tried to bring the film back. It's very hard to regain momentum, but I feel like Elvis has done a nice long, it's still doing pretty decent numbers day to day and the drops are low. So that's good. And it really was an ideal release date. I feel like Elvis has a much better shot at being an awards play than Rocket Man did. We saw the song and pretty much nothing else. That's exciting to hear because, you know, Mike and I do this Oscar show year round and we're, we're looking for movies the year round and we're making the, our cases for them uh, then. And, yeah, we're, we're very high on Elvis in that regard as well. And I'm wondering, yeah. I am wondering if, you know, wh- or what sticks in the brains of Academy members, let's say, if they don't rewatch Elvis come that time or they don't rewatch Top Gun uh, come come awards time and come voting time. Because, look, I mean, it, it, it's human nature. If they come off of all the film festivals and it's just a love fest for all these films at the film festivals, you know, th- that recency bias is striking. And I do wonder how some films can get maybe rele- relegated if they come out earlier to certain categories. I mean, we've definitely seen it with uh you know inter- documentaries or animated films some of them that are great they just get relegated to those two categories and we have something that's been that's been suggested for top gun maverick uh, the special achievement oscar I've, I've read this in certain places for its next level stunt work for how they utilize the the, the navy or the air force of course and Basically, that they put something on screen that we've never seen before. Do you consider that VFX, maybe cinematography? Are you afraid of a special achievement Oscar? Or do you say, bring it on, give them that too? How do you view that? I, I think you just view it as a film, as one of the films in contention. I, I, don't, I, I don't like that special uh, award situation. I mean, right off the bat, you have to put, I'd say, sound, right? Sound is right there. Elvis sound. Yeah. Um, again, cinematography, I think editing of Top Gun Maverick and editing of Elvis. I mean, they really kind of line up very similarly because I even have Tom Cruise's best actor. So you look at where they kind of line up as far as award categories that you see them fitting into. And Elvis and Top Gun Maverick surprisingly fit into a lot of the same categories. The one that they don't is I would say actually is crazy. I would never imagine this would happen. I have more of a supporting actor play on Top Gun Maverick (laughs) than Elvis with Tom Hanks because Mm -hmm. there's no way that Tom Hanks gets into, listen, that is objectively not great Tom Hanks. And thank God the whole film isn't brought down by what he does. I, I, I watched it a second time and actually uh, two and a half times. I, I walked out halfway through the third one because the people next to me were having a conversation. And I said, I do not want to be here anymore. But I'd already seen it two and a half times. He was going off to the military. So it was the perfect time to exit. But but when I watch it, you know, those those times, I see Hanks and I think he's trying but it just doesn't work. I think the film's better with a John Goodman versus Tom Hanks. So surprisingly, I would take Ham or Kilmer over Hanks for sure. If we're talking about supporting, do I think those will happen? No, but I would say you have more of a shot with Top Gun Maverick in that category. Yeah, we referred to Hanks and uh, and Elvis there as as <laughs> Job of the Hanks a couple times on this podcast with his jowls there. So we're with you. Uh, it's just not it's bad casting. I mean, it's one of those situations I'd love to find out from Baz. It's one thing if an actor says, I want to do it, and it's Tom Hanks. You're like, of course. Yeah. And you have to sit there for a second and say, wait a second, is that the right move for my film? And I think that clearly it wasn't. And Baz was like, oh, my God, Tom Hanks can do anything. And we're like, well, yeah, but not this. <laughs> <laughs> I think we share your uh, your vision, your opinion yep. there. But let's talk about the other Tom from Top Gun and Tom, the Tom Cruise of it all here. This is going to be, you mentioned you put him in your best actor conversation right now. I know a lot of people feel that way. This would be the first time he sniffed the best actor category since arguably 2004 when he was in the conversation for Collateral. Since then, there's been a, same here, but he's been out of that limelight. And in the time he's been out of the Oscars conversation, there's been a ton of scrutiny heaped upon the Church of Scientology and his relationship (laughs) to it. and, And obviously... 
it's been in conversations, it's been in documentaries, it's been in TV shows, it's been the subject of the big HBO show, uh, Going Clear, that was huge a couple years ago. It hasn't necessarily held back some of its other famous members. Elizabeth Moss at one has a couple Emmys on her resume still. She's famously a member of the Church of Scientology. You're out on the West Coast, you, you deal with the, the voting bodies of all these different award shows as it is. He's still the guy that jumped up and down on Oprah's couch. That's what we kind of remember him for the first time he may have lost a little bit in the public eye. Does the Church of Scientology thing get held against him at this point? Do, do people just separate the act from the actor? Does it matter at all? I don't hear anybody talking about that. Uh, okay. You know, out here, I just don't. Uh, it's a very fair question. I just don't hear it. I just think that the love for Tom Cruise overrides any criticism ultimately about him. He just seems, even though we saw that set meltdown on Mission Impossible, remember during COVID, he had the meltdown mm-hmm. about the masks or just COVID tests, whatever, and he just went off and he sounded like a dick, frankly. Uh, but, mm-hmm. you know, in the situation, I think, look, he survived that. I think Tom Cruise is Teflon, clearly. So no matter, short of something horrific coming out about him, he's going to be beloved by the town. And certainly for someone who has a film now, like we say, at 1.3 billion, saving theatrical, one of the films that did so. And the goodwill is just too much for Tom Cruise. I think he, because he hasn't been in the conversation, never has had a nomination. This is the time. And we talk about that Mm. so often, but when's the next time? Why not now? And we do have to see everybody else. There's no question. We can't be saying it's done and he's preordained like Austin Butler. Austin Butler's in. I don't care what happens the rest of the year. But Tom Cruise is going to be one of those in the mix, like top 10. And then let's see who else we have out there. There's so many films and so many performances by big name actors that that could be the issue when we get down to it. So Top Gun is obviously one of the premier AAA big studio titles that we had in the first half that we think has Oscar's legs. Uh, something from still an established studio, but it's certainly more of an indie-rific type feel is a movie that's been, uh, oddly enough and ironically enough, everything, everywhere, all at once. That's also the title of the movie. Does that feel like a serious contender? Does that have something that feels like it has legs enough that can carry it to the Oscars race in Q3 and Q4 here of 2022? Do you feel it's akin to Coda? Or does it feel like just something that's a nice first half of the year story and might fall short? As much as I don't, I, listen, I'm not a huge fan of everything everywhere all at once. I've been very vocal about that. I think it's maybe the most overrated film of the past forever. Honestly, I do believe that. But that's did you say Parasite or did you say everything I couldn't hear? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes, so you feel, you, I, I feel the way about everything everywhere as you, Parasite. But listen, I can't deny the fact that it is a sensation. It's A24's highest grossing film ever. It's really a film that keeps hanging on. It's still throughout the entire year. It's been out for now months, and it's still going. They just added, what, eight extra minutes. The last thing that film needs is eight extra minutes. It needs a subtraction of minutes, not an addition uh, to make it better. But they did, and look, they're getting even more money out of it. So there's you, you can't deny the fact that everything, everywhere, all at once should be in the conversation. I think... Ultimately, it's really about Michelle for me. I think that's that's the one that I will go with. Okay, mm-hmm. I can go along with that. Everything else for me, no. Uh, but that's just me personally. But if I'm talking about rewards potential, I would say absolutely based on the reaction to virtually everyone else that they love this film. How about like a screenplay nod for everything, everywhere, all at once, original screenplay? I know the editing is a bit manic. It's a bit... Rick and Morty, uh, Gahui Kwan, uh, he comes back after, you know, 20 years out of the business. They have some threads that they could campaign on, I think, down the stretch. And the fact that it, like Mike said, it it swept the HCA awards in the mid-year point, and it did so convincingly, especially with something like Top Gun out there, uh, I, I wonder if... Maybe we're us underestimating it. I, I, t- I tend to feel like I've been up and down on everything everywhere. I just rewatched it, and it was it was a bit grating as a rewatch, which was I was surprised about. Mike just watched it for the first time, and he was higher on it, and I've been high and low, to, to be honest with you. So I'm trying to figure out: is this a coda potential? Do we are we are we not reading the room on it? Uh, that, can it find its way into editing and supporting actor? Well, it better not find its way into screenplay. 
Okay, let's start with that. <laughs> not, I mean, of all the things, if you want to pick one thing that you do not, you know, award for that film, it is screenplay. I mean, how do you award a film with hot dog fingers? Not once, not twice, <laughs> not three, not four. No, I'm, I, listen, I've only seen it once. And, and, and Mike, you just watched it. Tell me, hot dog fingers is no fewer than five times minimum. Each of those things at the end, from Raccoonatui to you know the the black bagel it's such a repetitious film over right. that back half hour that it's like it's a relationship to me and my friend paul academy picks on twitter hilarious said it is like uh it's like being in a relationship you're in love at first at the end you just want a divorce you don't want to <laughs> deal and that's how i felt about the film i'm sitting there and i turned on it and when i turn on everything everywhere i turn on it hard and i go oh now i just want to leave you now have bashed me senseless with this repetition of ideas and i think it ruins the goodwill that i had for it over the first half so it's screenplay no chance uh editing i mean i guess uh, direction, you know, again, for me personally, I don't have it anywhere. That's why when I talk to Scott about HCA, I go, okay, this is why I'm not a member of HCA. <laughs> I, can't, I cannot join a group that celebrates. No, I, at some point, I will join HCA. He's asked me many times. I'm just a part of Craig's choice. So I'm just, we're figuring that out. But here's the point is that I don't see it like other people do, but I understand that I am not the norm. I get it. But please, let's just please not talk about screenplay and everything everywhere all at once. That's one thing I want taken off the table. So not a, I'm surprised. I this isn't a question a we had written no. down. Well, I, well I'm no curious where you where do you have it ranked amongst your first half movies? Is it in your top ten of the first half of 2022? Oh, no, or is no, 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 it, no, no. It's, it's just no, something. It's, it's poison so to you. Oh my god, it's so far down. Okay, no, it's it's it, for me. It'd be like a C minus grade, which is wow. nowhere near a top ten. Yeah, it's pretty. It's low. I mean, again, but you know what's weird is that I put out a tweet right after I saw it before everyone else had seen it. It was only New York, LA. And I'd just seen it, and I'd seen all of this praise about the film. And I said, listen, for me, uh, it's very overrated. And I, I want to start a group called the Everything Everywhere is Overrated, but I'm afraid everyone's afraid to admit that. <laughs> and, and the tweet started getting a lot of likes. You know, like it was up to 50 plus. And here comes one of the Daniels. I forget which one. He came in and said, we agree. Uh, I, we think it's overrated, too. And it was, I was like, okay, here we go. But, but at that point, it was weird because he, he, he jumped in, and then no joke, within 24 hours, he had actually sent another tweet saying, hey, I apologize, and people were coming after him. I'm like, I'm used to that, okay? First of all, <laughs> I'm used to people coming after me. I'm not worried about it, and I certainly am not going to back down from my belief that it's overrated. Uh, that said, if, if someone else loves it, that's your thing. Everything's subjective, ultimately. Um, so it, it's, it's just one of those uh, situations where it's hard for me not being in my top 10 of the first half of the year, it's, I mean, it, it, I'm not going to say it's going to be my worst films, but it'd be closer to my worst films of 2022 than my best. I will say that. Well, you make an easy segue to getting back to talking about Austin Butler by talking about things that are overrated. Not that Butler's performance was, but I think the easy comparison to make is the one you made to Taron Egerton and Rocketman, or maybe the one that Rami Malek had, which I personally think was overrated when he was did that in Bohemian Rhapsody. You seem to, it sounds like you think that Austin Butler's performance in Elvis certainly outshines at least those two do you think he has the legs to withstand what seems to be a loaded q4 at least i mean november and december seem like they have and you have it on awards day it's upcoming a, a lot of potential best actor names could be entering that race to upset him but you you seem pretty sure to have him there at the end of the day well here's i'm just going based on merit ultimately right so when you watch something no matter when it is during the year and obviously this was in june when when i saw it is that it's so great. It's so next level. It's so at the top of the chart that it's very hard for anyone to beat that. I think it doesn't matter what else comes along unless you have a string of five of the best performances, you know, in one year that we've ever seen then. But but it's so far up there. But I kind of felt the same way about Taron in Rocketman. Uh, you know, I've only seen Rocketman once. Um, but I did think that that's a very tough role. He's singing. Okay, I, I give him credit for doing that versus what Rami did with the lip syncing. So I think there's more uh, of an effort there. Uh, but but for me, I think Austin Butler is just so far ahead of everybody else that to jump ahead of him is going to take something that is masterclass level. And and I don't know. I mean, we don't get we don't get five of those in a year. We might get mm. one or two more. 
but we're not going to get five that knock him out. So in terms of Elvis, I wonder if there's an easy path where this is going to, you know, stay stay relevant and that's production design costume design because Catherine martin she's been an academy darling with baz lerman films she's been nominated for four of them she's won four oscars two from moulin Rouge, two from the great gatsby i do you ascribe to this whole this whole sense that there has to be a path to certain things i mean is it maybe it's just at the winning voting stage do you sense this with elvis like elvis's its floor is going to be production design and costume design and maybe that'll keep uh other things like austin butler and baz lerman and director in play best picture in play film editing in play or um or do you think this path stuff is all BS? Well, I mean, listen, I think so highly of Elvis from a technical filmmaking perspective. Um, certainly production design, lock, uh, sound, lock. Um, cinematography and editing for me, really up there. Um, so it has so many things going for it that Austin Butler, I, Austin Butler's number one. But I would say production design would be number two. And I have Baz up there for direction. Here, I'm a huge fan. And you guys know, you've watched Midnight Movie Talk. I am huge about extracting elements from films that are exceptional. No matter what the film is, if there is something that is award-worthy in the film that is head and shoulders above everything else, then you need to be able to take that, remove it from the film, and award it with something or put it in the conversation. And I go back to a film for me from, I want to say it's 2019, maybe it's early 2020, uh, Gretel and Hansel. If you watch that film, you watch the cinematography and the production design of Gretel and Hansel and, and the score, you've got three technical – the cinematography, let's just, let's just go with that because it's mm-hmm. that simple. That film cinematography should have been an Oscar nominee. It's that good. And who cares if Gretel and Hansel was kind of a slog, kind of boring – not a bad film, but it wasn't, you know, lights out. And certainly horror is always going to be an issue, even though I don't even know it's a true horror film. It's a quasi-horror film. But that cinematography, we've got to be able to do that. So for me, when I look at Elvis, I say Baz Luhrmann and his direction in that film. I want that. I want that direction because it is singular. It is special and not, I don't know, any of the directors who could do what they did artistically with Elvis like Luhrmann did with that film. Do you think a lot of voters think that way? They try to parse it out and just do every category merit based. No, no, I it doesn't seem that way. That. So, what what do you think no. is the explanation for that? I, because you know, I'll be honest with you. A lot of these people don't watch all the films. Right. I mean, right, I, right, right. So they, right? They're just not as big as cinephiles as we are. They're not as into it, and it's a real shame because there are so many things that really deserve to be award attention worthy, and they don't ever get there because they don't get the people don't bother watching them. And, and that's uh, you always have to remember that when you're trying to forecast these things. But it is disappointing because you really should be rewarding, awarding the things that are exceptional, regardless of, you know, the elements. The elements are, are everything to a film. And if all the elements are there, right, like a social network, right, every single element of the film, it doesn't matter what you want to name. Everything in that film is Oscar worthy. Mm. That's rare. That's very rare. Usually you get a few things. Um, you know, for me, like Coda, I mean, Coda, maybe screenplay. I mean, I'm not a huge Coda fan, but I'm saying, would you ever nominate Coda for cinematography? Right. Would you ever nominate it for, you know, uh, uh, anything technical editing? No, because it's like a TV movie. So I think when you watch Elvis, you're watching filmmaking from Baz that is truly award worthy. And I just want him as director because he is that lights out in that one particular element of the film. Very crucial one. Well, this is uh, this has been eye opening and, and and really cool to uh, dive into a couple of those films. I'm a little surprised. I must have missed that episode on Everything Everywhere. My God, I did not expect that. But that this is this is why I wrote this last segment because I was curious. Truly, I was curious how you po- power rank these films. You know, in terms of the the first half of the year, and I know you're high on Nope uh, from a technical standpoint. I know you're high on The Batman. Uh, certainly from a technical standpoint and and for the rest of it. So I was kind of, you know, looking to compare and contrast those two films in terms of what you thought had a better chance at uh, at Oscars. I guess maybe, to, uh, you know, I th- let's just dive right in. Sound design, original score, cinematography. Who do you take, Nope or The Batman? 
Uh, Batman cinematography, because you you have Greg Fraser just coming off the Oscar. You, you have him with, I think the cinematography, as much as I love cinematography and Nope and Hoyt, I think that it's a tougher film to shoot the Batman um, just because you're working with, with gigantic, a lot of CGI, a lot of, a lot of sets. I think that when you look at Hoyt, he does manage to capture North LA, you know, up there um, by Magic Mountain in the middle of nowhere. By the way, I want to go there after seeing Nope. I really want to go out to Agua yeah. Dulce and just go down there and find this area. Um, but but they do, he does a great job too. But I think Batman cinematography, I think sound design, I would go Nope. Mm-hmm. And what was the other one? Original score, we have Michael Abels for Nope and the Batman's Michael uh, Giacchino. I would go Giacchino, uh, but... You know, that's interesting because when you say no open score, that's one issue I have with the film. I don't think it's a bad score. I also don't think it's a great score. I wish that Nope was scored, and I always say this, but I'm go- I'm going to say it. I'm, I'm going to say it again. I want an electronic score on that film. It is a sci-fi <laughs> film, and you've got this almost traditional score when he's riding the horse and the Western, UFO. Yeah. yeah, it's the Western. I wanted some kind of wild-ass, super experimental score, and I understand that's not going to happen because we already know that Jordan's worked with bells in in different things Mm -hmm. so now you've got this situation where i just i want to see a michael levi i mean i know that's asking a lot right (laughs) because michael levi is an a24 neon does strange things but oh my god i think nope would be improved immeasurably if you let michael levi score it and and by the way funny story this is something no one else has heard i'm telling you guys here tonight uh is that when the uh Directors come up with their test cut of a film. I was talking to a production head, I had lunch with a production head the other day, and they said nine times out of ten, when you watch a rough cut of the film, directors have to put a score in. They say they always pick Micah Levi. Really? That's how appreciated Micah's work is. And that's that's the cool thing is I, I just wish – I love interesting – and very challenging uh, scores, and certainly electronic. And I feel like that's the one issue. So that's why I would pick, I would pick Giacchino's work in the Batman over Nope. Do you think Universal considers Nope a box office success? They're not going to admit it if not. I mean, I, I went on this rant the other day, and I think it's 100% mm-hmm. accurate. Listen, this is a film that opened at 44 with the actual 44.4 million dollars. Okay. That is roughly 27, let's just call it 30 extended, less than us. Now, I need someone to explain to me how 27 to $30 million under the last film, if you're looking to build, because obviously you see Jordan Peele building from Get Out to Us and now know a summer release, not March, summer, and it had the weekend all to itself. How is 44.4 million, uh, you know, outperforming or is like variety said the other day a resounding yep no it's not it's not even close if the if his if us had opened to 40 you could say yeah it's, it's still the track one up but it's a big step down as far as opening weekend and I, I would say no it's not it's not a failure it's not a bomb but it's also not a resounding success either yeah, I, I loved the episode on that uh, that you did recently with the with the note box office. So you, you're definitely covering the hell out of the the box office from all angles and the different perspectives for certain. You know, Mike and I kind of forecast a, a, a little bit on Oscar Ray's checkpoint in terms of you know, and we did an over unders episode, which was a lot of fun. Uh, but I, yeah, I wonder, I wonder if it's going to be in the be in the black at the end of the day. I don't know, but. We did have a return of the box office this year in a huge way, which means I think for the you know for our purposes here at the Oscars, uh, the, uh, an Oscars podcast, we have a lot more VFX uh, contenders. So I'm wondering, you know, we got the Batman, we got Nope, we got Top Gun, we got Elvis, and and we got Marvel properties: Thor, Love and Thunder, Doctor Strange, and the Multiverse of Madness. We even got Fantastic Beasts, Beast, which I'm guessing gets forgotten. Jurassic World. You already have your page at Awards Ace up for VFX. Do you, how many nominees do you think are there? I know we got Avatar coming. We got some big blockbusters still coming. But do you think we've already seen a bunch of nominees in that category? We 
you think about it, yeah, I was. That's a great question because I, I was looking at that on the visual effects page here on awards days, and I said to myself, uh, "We've had a lot of these films already come out. I mean, look yeah. at Elvis, right? You know, there's a ton of biz effects in that. You look at Maverick, same thing. Um, Thor: Love and Thunder, I think, does a very good job. I like it over Doctor Strange. And then you still have the Batman has visual effects, and ultimately, it's going to be about Avatar: The Way of Water, right? That's going to be your your winner. I think everyone else is playing for second. Um, Black Adam looks to have pretty solid stuff. DC does a good job with their visual effects. Um, so I think when you look at those, we're really just looking at two outside there: Avatar and Black Adam, that are the last two. I think everything else is going to already come things we've already seen. Even Nope, right? Nope's in there. Yeah. Um, you know, Shazam's there at the end of the year, but. Uh, and Fantastic Beasts is going nowhere, so that's out. Um, but but yeah, look, we just listed almost everything that, that's already in theaters or has been released so far. So really, we have the two. But the, at the end of the day, it's really about Avatar Way of Water. I mean, I think that's your eventual winner. It's going to be very difficult to beat that. Give us a performance of this list that you think has the most merit and the most Oscars legs between Kiki Palmer and Nope, Christian Bale and Thor Love and Thunder, Madeline McGraw or Ethan Hawke for The Black Phone, Nicole Kidman from The Northman, Mark Rylance, Phantom of the Open, or Mia Goth in X. Are we sleeping on any of those as potential Oscars players? Well, I think, you know, for me, it's Kiki Palmer is, is a really interesting play. I agree if I'm universal, right, if I'm universal, I'm taking Kiki Palmer, I'm sliding her supporting, okay, even though it is a co-lead with Daniel, you make Daniel the lead because there's no chance he's going to get nominated. So at least you have a lead. You have to do that. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to slide Kiki supporting where you have a better shot at landing. Do I, do I think it'll happen? Uh, it's going to be hard. But at least you give her an opportunity because if you throw her into Best Actress, it's never going to happen. It's right. a 0% chance. If you throw her supporting, there's a much better shot because it's a big supporting performance, right? Obviously, it's pretty much a lead. But we know category fraud and they can do whatever they want. And if I am trying to just strategically i'm trying to strategically get this right for nope i am putting kiki palmer in supporting because that's her best shot so i would say of the ones you mentioned that's the best i would love to see a christian bale Uh, disney it's all up to them and what they want to do how hard do they want to push that Uh, bale seems like the kind of guy who would actually go along with that and do an event or two he he did a quite a bit for Ford versus Ferrari, mm-hmm. name a film going all the way back. He is a guy that will do that stuff because he understands once FYC season comes around, he's got to do some of the legwork and then possibly get a nomination. I mean, no one that I've seen since I've been out here in Hollywood and been doing this has worked it harder than Gary Oldman for The Darkest Hour. Nobody. He did 20-plus meet-and-greets with various wow. awards groups. It was insane. He was doing like two, three a week, and most stars don't want to do that. Uh, and I think that's going to be, bring it back to Top Gun Maverick, that will be big for Tom Cruise and Maverick. Get Tom Cruise in a group of people and meeting people. Oh, my God. You talk about the Academy voters falling over. They're going to lose it because that's a massive star and you're in the room with Tom Cruise. So that's key as well is getting the star there. Uh, that That's a big part of the game. Well, I we promised a frenzy of questioning at the end of this episode. We're trying to cover a lot of ground, and you've certainly delivered uh, on, on answering all of our burning questions here. We appreciate it. We got one more uh, before we hit the outro button, and that's with animated feature, because animated feature is another category where I think you can get a lot of ground covered in terms of the contenders early on in the year, and you, of course, put out put out your page on Awards Ace uh, very early on as well. We just got Marcel the Shell with shoes on. I, I thought it was cuteness overload. It was adorable. A24, they, they'd done it again in terms of film Twitter, making us all love them. But we've had a strong year already for for animated feature, and it's a strange year, though, as well, because Pixar, the juggernaut in that category forever, they put two films on Disney+. Plus. I'm kind of unsure about the candidacy of A Turning Red, uh, or at least one one film on Disney+, Plus. and Lightyear was kind of hit with a thud at the box office. So I'm... I'm I don't know what to make of those two films. And we got a lot coming from Netflix. We already got the Sea Beast, which is solid. The, How, uh, the House, Apollo 10 and a half. 
We got a couple more coming from Netflix with My Father's Dragon, Pinocchio. We just got the trailer today. And then we got a bunch of other contenders that have come out and seemingly done well. Bob's Burgers, Bad Guys, Minions, The Rise of Gru. I've seen worse get nominated before, unfortunately, in this friggin' animated category that I can't predict very well in the past. So, best animated feature. What's your read on that right now? Do we have anything cemented thus far? This is, this is Netflix's year. They're going to win. I'm telling you, let's mark this down today as we do this conversation. They're going to win with either Pinocchio or Wendell and Wilde. Assuming (laughs) Wendell and Wilde sits there, that's Jordan Peele and Pinocchio, as we know, Del Toro. Those two are there. Strange World from Disney will be in the mix. I think that's the best shot Disney has, not the Pixar films. Mm. Um, Turning Red, I don't think really will get a nomination. I think Lightyear has a better shot. Uh, but, But what if neither gets it right and minions gets in because of the box office success or we still have dc league of super pets i don't think it's i gotta see it tomorrow i do not know i have very low expectations for that (laughs) but warner brothers maybe puts an fyc campaign on it also universal has the bad guys one thing you gotta say is we gotta remember between the bad guys and minions universal's always in the mix for one of those slots and they didn't get it for sing two last year so they're pissed Mm -hmm. they want to get one of those two films the bad guys or Minions, probably Minions because it was a bigger box office hit and certainly became a cultural phenomenon with all the kids going, to these preteens and teens and yeah. college kids going to say, right? <laughs> so it turned into something. And Mike. Crazy, right? yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I wouldn't say so, so it's there, and but I really think at the end of the day, it's going to be between Pinocchio and Wendell and Wild. Those are the two, sight unseen. I would put everything on Pinocchio with a little bit on um, on Wendell Wild. I put most of it, all my chips on Pinocchio. I think that's the lock to win. And Netflix has been trying, and they've been really working to try to get this thing. And this is their year, and they know it too because of the weakness, as you mentioned, of those Pixar releases. Eric, as always, we cannot thank you enough. I mean, this has been, like Mike said, eye-opening but very enlightening, too, and that's why we love having you on at this time of year to kind of set the table for this home stretch, like you put it at the start of the episode here, kind of look back and get ready for what's to come. Uh, You are at the Multiplex. You are Midnight Movie Talk. You're awardsace.com. You're absolutely everywhere there is to be right now. Can you let our listeners know uh, where they can find you, what's coming next from you, what's exciting in your world right now? You just wrapped, I mean, it's perfect, right? So updating awards ace as much as possible, certainly with as we get these festivals locked down, like Venice and Telluride and Toronto, we'll get that all situated. Um, Also, Midnight Movie Talk, Sundays, Tuesdays, and Thursdays on YouTube. Uh, Just search Midnight Movie Talk. And just started at the Multiplex with Scott Menzel, which is our Cisco and Ebert review show, which I have very high hopes for. First episode, very well received. So it's going to be exciting end of the year. And of course, as we enter awards season, I mean, it doesn't get better than that. So we're there. And we already had some really strong films we've been talking about here for for the last hour plus. This is a very good year, strong year. And I look forward to what happens at the end. But I'm telling you this, as I leave here, I'm, if you have money and you want to bet, and Mike, you just said you're a degenerate mm-hmm. when it comes to betting, <laughs> Big time. go put it on Babylon now. Babylon. You're that confident in it, huh? Over yes, David O. Russell, yep. over Spielberg. Yep. Oh, yeah, and listen, we didn't have a chance to – Amsterdam, I think, is going to be a non-starter. Uh, just based Ooh, on wow. that trailer alone, I do not see – I'm not – that trailer does nothing for me, and everyone I've talked to has the same general sentiment. I would say for sure Babylon over Amsterdam. That's not even a conversation, honestly. Babylon, and, and I would – and there's going to be something else that pops in there. What if it's Maverick? But But – Put your cash today because you get great odds on Babylon. No love for the Fablemans either. Well, Fablemans is another one too, right? You've got that in Universal. She said there's other films. I'm just saying it's going to be hard to beat Damien Chazelle doing mm. old time Hollywood mm. in a town that loves movies about Hollywood. And, you know, Paramount's going to go crazy on this. They have not had a film since Fences, really. Rocket Man, but didn't happen. So this is going to be their. Super Bowl of Super Bowls. This is going to be everything for them. And I think ultimately it's going to be all about Babylon when we get to the Oscars. Well, there you go. From your lips to the uh, degenerates like me's out there's ears and bookies. Uh, <laughs> you got a, got a dollar burning a hole in your pocket. Get it to Babylon. As always, dear listener, we do want to hear from you. Let us know your thoughts on anything we touched on in this episode. Anything you heard Eric talk to us about or anything we do here in the MMO Empire. You can leave us those thoughts, comments, questions, or concerns on our social medias. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Facebook and Instagram at MM and Oscar on Twitter, Mike, Mike, and Oscar at gmail.com.com and on Reddit. We're 
are available wherever you do hear podcasts. If you're listening to us on either Spotify or the Apple Podcast app, if you would be so kind, if you appreciate what we and our friends do here to leave us a five-star review. Once you're done leaving Eric a five-star review on all his sites, of course, first. Michael, let's get some words of wisdom and let's uh, what's coming next from us to get out of here on. Well, it's wise to follow Eric Weber on uh, on social media, watch all of his shows, and uh, certainly go to awardsace.com. Been using your site, referencing your site uh, for all years. these years, yeah. Eric, and uh, really appreciate it. It keeps us in the game. And uh, when, did, when is Sunset's Film Circle, uh, the Sunset Film Awards coming out? Remind well, we us. Do it right, yeah, right after Thanksgiving. So uh, it's really, we, we aim to be one of the first, if not the first. And that's Love challenging because you get a ton of stuff that comes out last minute. But but you, you got to get to it. That last like two weeks is just watching usually like two movies a day. Uh, but I would say look for that at the end of November, right around Thanksgiving time. Well, we got Oscar Race Checkpoint coming up next, but we'll certainly uh, and and you know we'll certainly have an Oscar Race Checkpoint covering the Sunset Film Awards. That's mm-hmm. always fun uh, around Turkey time, and uh, yeah, but we got Venice, we got TIFF, we got all kinds of stuff coming down the pike here for the fall, setting us up in August, and we got some cool ass movies in August too, still to come. Bullet Train, Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. Mike and I will be covering those, and I'm and I'm certain uh, you'll be covering those on Midnight Movie Talk as well. So look forward to that uh everybody thank you eric yeah eric we can't thank you enough man you got it guys i look forward to the next time i fire up skype here in two <laughs> <laughs> now i'm deleting the app yeah yeah we'll te- we'll text your dm you to re-download it next time <laughs> we'll send you a message on aol smoke signal maybe yeah <laughs> good stuff as always guys i can't wait to talk to you as we roll into award season likewise Thanks, buddy. buddy really appreciate it our thanks to Eric once again. Guys, when reality sucks, you can come look past the summer and get ready for the fall and winter with us and our friends. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar trying to make award season year-round. Without the stuffiness, we will see you all very soon. See you.